The Emergency Medical Minute is excited to announce that we are now offering AMA, PRA, Category 1 credits via online course modules. To access these and for more information, visit our website at www.emergencymedicalminute.com backslash CME-courses or simply click on the link in our show notes and create an account. Welcome to another episode of On the Streets. I'm your host, Jordan Orada, as always. And today, we have the pleasure of having Dr. Eric Hill, board-certified emergency physician at the Medical Center of Aurora and EMS medical director for nine different agencies here in Colorado, as well as a retired military physician with the Army, former paramedic firefighter, and combat veteran. Thank you so much for being here today. Happy to be here. So... Today we're going to talk about capnography. A lot of people know a little bit about it, but I think there's a huge gap. So thank you for being here as an expert on this and let's get started. Sure. What would you say is, I guess, the foundational thing that everybody should know about capnography? What is it? I mean, capnography is really looking at the expired CO2 that we all breathe out and I think, you know, this has come a long way in the last 20 years. It's definitely become more in the forefront with EMS. Uh, Most EMS monitors now, you know, all have the ability to monitor this stuff. When I was a paramedic, you know, we never had this. Uh, It was pulse ox or nothing. And we just knew that by the time that they were already becoming hypoxic, that you were way down the curve and that someone could be apneic for, you know, a few minutes sometimes before you would even detect it based on a pulse ox. So capnography, you know, has come a long way in that way because it's really a minute-to-minute assessment of their ventilatory status. And also, I think it has a very important role to play in crews and in medical personnel being able to assess the kind of internal physiologic status of what's going on with the patient. I mean, you can tell a lot about their acid-base status and a lot about their internal functioning and, and what's going on with them. If you can take that tool you're using and apply it to the patient, uh, you can make a lot of good decisions. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the key things to know is that those readings really tell you a lot about what's going on inside, tells you about what's going on with the respiratory drive and the gas exchange, the metabolism, all these different things. At a very superficial level, people use it to confirm tube placement and say, yes, they're breathing normally. Okay, it's between 35 and 45, and uh, let's go to the hospital, right? Yeah, correct, and there's there's definitely been a... You know, the most basic functions of it is, yes, I can detect, you know, that my tube is in place and I've got good gas exchange. Assuming you have a, you know, normal functioning lungs, it can tell you a lot about the actual physiologic status of your patient, uh, what's going on internally with them. Um, You know, and applying that to the patient, it can really drive your patient care decisions and help you detect underlying disease processes, kind of guide your management. So in that way, I mean, I think the infancy stages of it is really looking at, you know, tube confirmation, but... Everything from sedation monitoring and sepsis evaluation and DKA evaluation. And I mean, all these things are in play now. And, and how we use it for cardiac arrest has really kind of you know, driven how we do cardiac arrest in some cases. Yeah, I think that that's been really fun to see it evolve over the last 15 years. I mean, even just going from color metric reading and saying, yeah, okay, we have something yeah. to actually looking at a waveform, understanding what those mean and being able to look at some of those subtleties in the picture that it gives you. And having that give you real-time feedback about what's going on with your patient, mm-hmm. like you said, instead of waiting for a potentially two-minute delay in oxygen saturation. Yeah, so the, the old cap knock, you know, that yellow to 
purple uh, thing that we, we always used to have in those uh, old two confirmation kits. It's the same idea and same concept. That's capnometry, uh, not capnography. And, and so it's really just, you know, detecting, yes, I'm detecting CO2. And so it's changing basically on the you know, litmus paper. It's basically changing the color of the paper, um, but it can be fooled. It can be fooled pretty easily. Um, if you've got a lot of CO2 in your stomach and things like that, you can really, you know, get significant color change back and forth for many breaths uh, with those devices versus, you know, if you're looking at a true waveform, I mean, there's, you know, the esophagus does not give you any kind of a waveform that looks like the lungs. So you will be able to detect a bad tube very quickly. If you know what you're looking for. If you know what you're looking for. <laughs> so, so let's start at the basics then, I guess. So capnography is a measure of ventilation, not oxygenation, right? Yeah, it's the best probably measurement of what the ventilation is going on with the patient. And it's, and what you're actually seeing is the, the exhaled CO2. Yes, correct. I mean, your, your body, if you go back to just a simple, you know, physiologic level, I mean, your body makes CO2 as part of your normal physiologic processes. And that's what got, that's what gets into your, you know, idea of what's going on physiologically with the person. Because if you have a normal aerobic metabolism, I mean, part of your byproduct, when glucose and oxygen go in the cell, CO2 and water come out of the cell along with ATP. But that CO2 in your body has to go somewhere. I mean, you want to exhale it. And so it is measuring the actual numbers you're getting is actually measuring the carbon dioxide that you're exhaling out of the patient. The entitled CO2, the, you know, the, the, the top number, that's really the top number of your peak, but it doesn't really tell you about the waveform itself. So the waveform itself can really tell you a lot about what's going on with the lung functioning. And it can help you detect if there's you know, kind of a, a bad tube or if there's some other kind of problem going on by looking at the, what the waveform is doing. It can tell you a lot. But that capnography number is very important. That entitled CO2 top number is important. But it really is just a number. And so you have to apply that number to your individual patient. And so the number is the partial pressure of exhaled CO2, correct? Yeah, it's a concentration measurement of like how much your CO2 you exhaled. So the entitled CO2 would be, I've, I don't remember the exact measurements they're using on it, but it is a measurement of carbon dioxide exhaled during the expiration phase of ventilation. Okay. And, and so the normal range of that for a normal, relatively healthy person is between 35 and 45 millimeters Correct. I mean, of mercury. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So 45, 40 is the really the, the most common number that we would use to say, yeah, 40 is normal. 35 is you know a little low, but it's still within the kind of range. 45 is a little bit high, but within that range, most people have normal functioning lungs. You, you breathe at a way that you try to maintain your PCO2 around 40 unless you're trying to compensate for something. Yeah, if you're trying to blow off excess CO2 from your system, yes. you should see a higher number. If you're blowing off, I mean, if you're really uh, hyperventilating yourself, um, you'll actually see a low number. And if so it, if your respiratory rate is fast. Yeah, so yeah. you're really, because you're, you're basically blowing it all off and you're basically, your body's trying to compensate for something on the inside uh, versus if it's, you know, if, you've, if you're really slow respirations, um, you may see a high number because you really have, you're basically now retaining a lot. You're not actually ventilating it out. <laughs> it's a very, it's a very complex kind of counterintuitive uh, uh, system you got going. And, the, and so then the graph should look, each breath has the shape of a plateau, right? And I remember when I was in paramedic school, the person who taught it said, never talk about shark fins always use the term alveolar plateau. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's that's great, but the shark fin is a useful thing as we'll we'll talk about later, but when we think about that shape, a normal shape is a pretty even plateau, right? Yeah, so uh, the normal the way a waveform should look is I mean it's somewhat almost box-like. 
And, you know, when someone starts the exhalation phase, uh, so they, you know, they're, they're basically inhaling or holding their breath. And once they start exhaling, that starts your waveform. And that phase one is really your inspiratory baseline. And that's just where you're sitting at. Phase two is a rapid spike upwards. And that is a, a very sharp increase. And once that number kind of hits uh, a certain number, there's phase three, which is really, that's where your plateau you're talking about. And so it's a much more gradual, slower increase. And that's really kind of getting out all that very, you know, minute gas at the very end of your airways. It's kind of coming out. So it's really looking at alveolar gas at that point. So at that point, there's very little increase in actual true numbers. I mean, it might go from, it might go from a 35 to a 38 during that plateau phase, but it's still kind of, you know, it's exhaling out that during that time. And then it, that plateau ends. Once you start inhalation, boom, the, the, basically the grass stops, it immediately spikes down to zero. That's your inhalation phase. And so that's normal, healthy breathing. That's normal, healthy breathing. And so what are some deviations from that? And what, is, what does that mean for us? Anything that's affecting, I guess, what your gas pattern would look like would be, you know, from a lung function standpoint, if you had, let's say, bronchospasm, if you were an asthmatic or a COPD, um, you would see, you would not see a normal kind of rapid upstroke in a, in a clean plateau because when you're bronchospastic and when you're bronchoconstricted, you have problems getting air out. And it's not so much a problem getting air in. So you're air trapping. And so when you're looking at that, it looks like almost like they call it a shark fin. And so it's a much more kind of uh, blunted rise. Uh, looks more like a shark fin in the water. And that's how you know that, you know, you really have bronchospasm or bronchoconstriction going on. That's probably the most common one we see that really affects the morphology. Obviously, if I was to be breathing very rapid, um, I would see, you know, a much shorter spike a much shorter plateau phase. Um, if I was breathing very shallow, I might see kind of, you know, the, the spaces of the uh, respiratory pattern might be more spread out. But over time, if I'm really retaining CO2, I might see that, you know, amplitude of how high my CO2 is rising is really beginning to increase over time. Um, so, you know, usually on your y-axis, you're really looking at, you know, you're looking at CO2 numbers, you know, how high is my CO2? And on your x-axis is really time. Yeah. And so... We should be able to see, as we look at any strip, you could look at these with no patient story, kind of like an EKG. You can look at this and say, all right, based on, you know, their respiratory rate is instead of a normal, you know, 16, it's at eight and the plateau is at 49 instead of 40. So what does that tell us about a patient? You can, you can apply it to any patient. I think that the key with these things is if you look at a, when you look at a capnograph, you should be able to say, I mean, okay, is it, you know, what, how high are my numbers? So if, if the numbers are low, I know they're basically, you know, they're blowing off CO2. If the numbers are high, I know they're retaining. You can look at and see, okay, what is their rate? Because let's say this is a minute-to-minute -minute assessment of respiration. It's not like a pulse ox. So this is really, I mean, you can get a very accurate respiratory rate from this. Um, so I can tell their respiratory rate. I can tell how deep they're breathing. I can tell if they're retaining CO2 or they're not, or if they're blowing it off uh, for some reason. I may not know what that reason is at this point, whether it's a normal process or if it's something you know that's not normal, um, but you can tell a lot from that. So if you apply that to the patient you have, if I, if I know they're intubated or if I know they have this going on, and if I show them a capnograph, I mean, they should be able to tell me clearly, yes, good tube, bad tube, cuff leak. Um, if, I, if I tell them this patient is uh, someone with this kind of presentation, and this is your this is your capnograph. They should be able to say, you know, well, this is indicative of 
you know, maybe sepsis or some kind of metabolic acidosis based on what I see here. And that can help kind of guide your treatment decisions. So let's go back a little bit and talk about the use of this in a sedated or intubated patient. What are the, the kind of the key things that anyone who's using capnography should be aware of when they're using it in that context? So if you go to, let's just say sedation, so sedation, you know, capnography, including the hospitals, I mean, the capnography is really your gold standard for monitoring. The idea that I can do this just by pulse oximetry alone is, is not good. Because really, when you're sedating somebody, obviously you're trying to accomplish something, but the accomplishment we're trying to accomplish is not to knock out their breathing. But <laughs> any sedative can decrease your respiratory rate. So no matter what sedative you're giving, you want to be able to assess their respirations and have a close monitoring of that. So putting them on capnography is definitely the best way to go for that. And so you can detect, you know, very quickly, are they becoming apneic? Are they slowing down? You know, what does their waveform look like in that way? Whether it's getting shallower respirations. Um, and so I can detect, okay, they're beginning they're becoming shallower and shallower and they're becoming less frequent. I can detect that pretty early on. And I can detect it way before they become hypoxic and way before they start having significant changes in their basically body CO2 levels because I'm looking at really their rate and their depth of breathing. Um, with intubation, it's the same concept. After your initial tube confirmation, when you put it on there, you really want to see a series of breaths that show a good, consistent waveform morphology. And so you put it on there, you have several breaths, and you're looking, okay, okay this looks like a good morphology, and they all look the same. And you know, if I do that for you know eight, 10 breaths and they're looking good, then I'm comfortable that I have a good you know tube in the trachea. The next part is, is to make, you know, if I start seeing that maybe initially it looks good, but maybe I start seeing that the amplitudes are lower, or I start seeing this like kind of weird beveling going on where the amplitude of the sort of the plateau phase of that waveform looks like it's just kind of a almost like an AFib. It looks kind of like real rocky. I may have a cuff leak. Okay. Uh, and so I may have uh, something wrong with the cuff. And so I want to check my balloon, make sure that's up and good. It really just kind of troubleshoot your tube that way. But it can help you detect cuff leaks. It can help if you've got a significant air leak for some other reason or a tube disconnect. Maybe the part of your circuit's broken. And, and that leads me to a question. I, When I was in the field, most of the airways that we have pre-hospital are not ideal, clean, easy airways. Mm -hmm. They're often... You know, there's vomit, there's blood, there's there's problems. And is the pre-hospital equipment we have these days pretty pretty good at working in those environments, or do we have to be really hyper aware of their exposure to liquid or saliva or vomit or any of those things? I think they're the same the quality that you would have in a hospital emergency room, but I mean they are certainly sensitive. I mean the, the way these devices work is they basically are taking a sample of fluid. So it's basically what we call a side sampling device. The actual detector is inside of your, your cardiac monitor typically. Um, and then you basically have this tube that kind of goes over and attaches to your endotracheal tube. And it's in between your tube and your BVM. And it's basically detecting what is your um, a sample of air come out. Now, if you've got a lot of blood or fluid coming out of the airway, it can clog your line. And, you know, that is, it's hard to overcome. Um, you know, if I have... You know, if I've if I've changed that a couple times and I have the tube in place and you know I, I mark my depth and I have it secured and I'm you know I'm, I know the tube is good based on my initial confirmation and I but my my line keeps on getting clogged up with fluid that really can't be overcome unless you can just suction it all out for some reason but it keeps coming up you're gonna have a hard time 
And so in those cases, I've said, you know, look, if you, unless you have a reason to believe the tube has moved, you know, if you still have good breath sounds bilaterally, the tube depth has not changed and you really have not, you know, jerked on that tube or anything, I think you're still in good, safe to say, you know, I'm okay that this tube is still good. I confirmed it initially. My device is now bad, but I have good um, other data to say that my tube has not changed in position. Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing to be aware of is if this gold standard that we have fails for a technical reason, which is very possible, what are those fallbacks? When yeah. we're listening to breath sounds, we visualized it going through the cords, all these things. We marked it. It hasn't moved. Um, yeah. You know, fall back on those traditional things because they are useful, but this yeah. is... It is, like a, it is a tool and it is, you know, still the best tool. I mean, the studies uh, they did on the early days of looking at endotracheal intubation with EMS is, you know, if they used um, endotracheal intubation with capnography, you know, they did not have any missed intubations. Um, they, it showed that they basically were able to detect any esophageal intubation um, at the time it happened and remove it so they didn't bring in any bad tubes. You know, you can still fool just the old, you know, you know, cl uh, chlorographic changing uh, yellow-purple devices. You can still change those. Um, th those did have some misses in those studies. So still, the waveform is still your best bet to use. But understanding that if it doesn't work and the, you know, the monitor is dead or something's going on, you have, you know, you, used to, you visualized it. Um, I'm a big fan of, you know, video laryngoscopy for that reason because it's recorded. I know it was there. Um, you know, you've got good confirmation, good breath sounds bilaterally. You know, you can uh, make sure your tube's, you know, in the correct depth and you secure it in place. And then, you know, you should start seeing a rise in, in pulse oximetry too if, you're, if the tube's good too. So all these things are just tools you use, but you still have to apply it to the patient and adapt to what you have. Nice. All right. Now, I remember when I learned about this, learning about the VQ mismatch. And what the mm -hmm. V is is ventilations and the Q is perfusion, right? Correct. So so what is a, a match? What is a mismatch? And, and what are we looking for on the capnograph for that? I think the most important thing to understand with VQ mismatch is that, or VQ match is, this is basically saying you have normal functioning lungs. You know, so if I've got a VQ match, it means my ventilation and perfusion are matched in the lungs. So the air coming in, the lungs, all the alveoli have the proper amount of perfusion going around them and they create a VQ match. And so what that means is, is that the air that I'm seeing, you know, I'm measuring external expired air. If I have a VQ match, that number should be really close to exactly what the CO2 level is in my blood. Um, so if I'm doing an arterial blood gas, you know, you get a pH and we get a PCO2, which is the partial pressure of CO2 in the blood and a PO2. And if I'm, if I have a VQ match, my entitled CO2, which is my measured expired CO2 should match what the PCO2 is. So the reason why that's important is if I, if I'm saying my entitled CO2 is 20, which is very low and you know, I've got a good VQ match, um, then that should be representative that their PCO2 in their blood is 20, which is very low. So then I have to decide, okay, why is it very low? I mean, why are they blowing all the CO2 off? Is it to compensate for something? Is it sepsis or DKA or, you know, whatever that may be. So that's where that is. The important concept of VQ mismatch is that if there's a mismatch for some reason, um, that could be either because of lung structural problem. And that, let's just take, for example, if you've got uh, uh, a lung problem like significant bronchospasm down low or you've got pulmonary edema in the lungs. And so the, there's no, you're not getting normal gas exchange. Um, in that situation, I mean, you could see 
um, BQ mismatch where you have you know, maybe 10 or so points difference and with the actual what you're measuring and versus what's actually in the blood. Um, likewise, if you had something like a pulmonary embolism, which actually cuts off blood flow to a part of the lung, that can also create a VQ mismatch because you're not perfusing that lung. The lung itself is structurally intact. When you're breathing in, that you know air is still going down to the alveolus, but there's no capillaries there with blood to actually grab that stuff and pull it out. So the, you know, the bigger that happens, the bigger the VQ mismatch, the more inaccurate it can be. And so what are the most concerning things to be aware of? PE, uh, most of the other things you're going to have a, a clue based on some history, some medications about your patient, if they yeah. have a history of asthma, if they have CHF. Yeah, I think uh, most times you'll, I mean, if the lung sounds sound full of fluid, you know, it's going to be, you know, uh, somewhat not necessarily completely on board. I mean, it might be trending the right way. I mean, if it's low, you could probably believe that that's low inside the body as well. But I think that you will add inaccuracy to it. But the trends can still be reliable. I mean, if you're, if it starts low and start treating them and it's improving, that's a good sign. You know, even if it might not be completely the exactly what's going on inside the blood at the time, because we want to treat the patient, not necessarily just the number. Um, but I think you know, pulmonary embolism is a big one. I think your anything that could, uh, fluid in the lungs, like big pneumonias, maybe COVID nineteen. Um, you know, that definitely impairs uh, gas exchange. You could have, um, one thing people don't think about too is, you know, when you have like an asthmatic and you open them up, uh, you know, you, the longer they've been kind of bronchoconstricted, if it's been like days and they've been kind of gradually shutting down, the body doesn't like to give uh, blood to areas of the lung that aren't ventilated. And so if you've kind of shut down parts of your lung because of severe asthma over several days, when you open that up with a bunch of bronchodilators, yes, you open up the lung, but if you ever noticed, you know, what happens with their pulse ox when you do that? It actually drops. Um, that's because all of a sudden I've, you know, I'm basically opened up this kind of dead airspace and the body's already kind of shunted blood away from that. So you're going to have some, some irregularities there that take time for the body to kind of re, you know, reset itself. To reperfuse and actually use yeah, that I mean, lung. It's going to basically yeah. open up those air spaces again, open up the blood spaces back to those areas of the lung and stop shunting the blood. And how long does that typically take? I mean, it can be hours uh, before it can kind of, you know, correct itself. Which we're probably not going to see pre-hospital. Yeah, pre-hospital. <laughs> I mean, just, I mean, I just tell people like, listen, you know, if, if you give someone a, a buterol and, you know, their sats drop, but they look better, you know, and their work of breathing is less, don't be too freaked out by it. I mean, that's just a common thing you see. Yeah. Like you said, treat your patient, not yeah. the numbers. Yeah. It's a, they're all useful tools, but you have to pay attention to your patient always, right? Correct. Yeah. And, and I think another really great thing about this is the the sensitivity and how quickly it gives you that feedback um any any comments on that anything to be aware of or cautious of as you're looking at those numbers like you, you don't want to be too reactive to them because you're getting that immediate feedback i think you, because it's, it's so quick you just want to be looking at you know applying what you're seeing on a moment-to-moment -moment basis and being able to react to it um you know i've never been you know, I guess afraid of the idea that it's too quick. I think it's just a matter of you have to, you're looking at it, but you have to be kind of monitoring what's going on with the patient at the time you're seeing it. If I start seeing, if I start seeing all of a sudden a loss of waveform or something, I mean, I know pretty quickly that either my tube is clogged or my line's disconnected or, you know, my BVM popped off or something's wrong or my tube's out of the airway. Um, if I start seeing, you know, uh, 
you know, quick changes. I want to look at the patient and see, you know, did something change here that I need to address or fix? It depends on what I'm seeing. You know, certainly loss of waveforms would be a big concern that either the, you know, the line is clogged or the uh, tube is bad if I'm using it for that device. If I saw no waveform at all on someone that I was monitoring for sedation, it means they're not breathing. Um, so that's obviously, that's, you know, that's an immediate, bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I want to be like really quickly, I'm trying on a spot and identify that quickly. So I think it's actually a, you know, incredibly valuable tool when you're using it for those purposes and the, the faster it is, you know, in the way it is, the better it is. Good. Okay. So in addition to using it for sedation and innovation, we also use capnography cannulas. What types of patients would you say those are most useful for? Um, you know, I mandate, I mandate its use with my agencies when I'm, uh, certainly if we're giving someone, uh, some kind of a CNS depressant that's altering their mentation level. So let's just say I give them fentanyl or morphine or, you know, Versed or Valium or something like that. Um, any of those medications that have a, a chance to decrease their CNS, uh, level, you, know, you want to be able to monitor them quickly. So, I, I tell people, I mean, listen, if, if someone's in agonizing pain and I give them a hundred of fentanyl and they, you know, are still like wide awake and talking to me clearly, but maybe in less pain, and that's not someone I'm as concerned about. Like I have to monitor the respiratory status because I can kind of tell they're still acting completely normal to me and talking very clearly. But if they're certainly looking like if I, if I gave them fentanyl and they're like, oh, you know, their eyes are kind of looking all dreary and they're looking like they're a little tired now. Um, that's someone I would definitely monitor because, you know, I've given them enough that I'm definitely affecting their CNS. Uh, and I would want to monitor that, you know, if you're ever giving, if you're, if you're ever giving somebody a sedative with the intent to sedate them, like an agitated patient, something like that, you'd absolutely want to have it on them as soon as you can. Uh, because that is, you know, how you monitor them to see, to make sure that they are, uh, you know, maintaining their respiratory status, uh, despite, you know, having the sedative. Because they're not able to give you that immediate feedback by talking, looking into your Yeah. Mouth. You just don't know what's going on with their ventilatory status at the time or not. So it's, it's the quickest way for us to be able to assess that. So by just, by putting that nasal cannula on there, it's really measuring just the expired gas right at the, the nose and the mouth. Um, that gives us our kind of most rapid assessment of being able to determine what's going on. We'll go back to using something for uh, innovation. How is this useful in cardiac arrest? Aside from obviously, you know, knowing what's going on mm -hmm. with the ventilations, if you're getting, if you have a good tube, first of all, but then if you're getting some good readings and they're consistent, what can that tell you about your patient and how I know that you can kind of gauge your CPR related to that. So sure. tell us a little bit about that. So it is a, there's two really, I think, cool things about capnography and cardiac arrest resuscitation. Um, one is actually it can be used as a marker to determine your effective, uh, how effective your CPR is. I mean, if you're doing high fidelity, good quality CPR, you should start seeing that entitled CO2 number increasing significantly over your two minute period of CPR. Um, and so, you know, let's just say they're, you know, they might start off at a 12 or something on their capnography. Uh, but when you're uh, doing CPR, if you're over your two minutes, I mean, if you can get that number cranked up to 25, 26, you know, you know uh, high 20s, I mean, that's a good, you know, you're doing good quality CPR compressions. You've got good ventilation going on. You've got good compressions because, I mean, what that's really measuring, right, is, you know, remember what, remember what I said before about what CO2 is. CO2 is a measurement of cellular respiration it's about you know it's being produced by your cells that are getting oxygen to them with glucose and making co2 
So there's really nothing else making that inside. So if you're actually able to, I mean, do CPR and get that CO2 numbers up, um, that's a good sign. That tells me that that's a, you know, potentially viable patient. Uh, it also tells me that, you know, you're doing good quality CPR compressions. Um, so it's a good prognostic value for us. The other thing it really tells us is if I'm doing CPR and, you know, I have this tube and I'm doing consistently, you know, let's just say it's uh, consistently during the CPR uh, phases, I'm in the like 22 to 25 range. And all of a sudden I get this, you know, spike up to 45, 50, 60 um, on my CO2. You know, that is a very good sign that I now have ROSC. I now have a returned pulse. And the reason is, is that, you know, as good as CPR is, and don't get me wrong, CPR is not that good. I mean, even the <laughs> best compressions we do, you know, it is nowhere close to being able to have the same kind of cardiac output of what an actual normal intrinsically functioning heart is doing. So if I'm, you know, uh, a normal functioning heart, you know, let's just say their ejection fraction is, you know, 60%. A small fraction of that is what I can generate by external chest compressions. It's hopefully just enough to kind of keep their body alive and their brain alive. It's very rarely enough to actually get them to like wake up or anything like that. And so, you know, if I have a big increase all of a sudden, that tells me that, you know, boom, underneath that, their heart has actually started and blood is now circulating around again and it's gathering, you know, blood from the external tissues and bringing it back up again. So that's a sign of, of ROSC. It can be fooled, and there are a few things that can fool it. Um, namely, if you were to, let's say, give somebody a big dose of sodium bicarbonate, um, you know, if you think this is a hyperkalemic arrest and you're going to give bicarb, uh, if you give a big dose of bicarb, the way the acid-base buffer system works in the body, when you give them bicarb, it binds to the acid and it breaks down to two compounds. It breaks down to water and CO2. So giving somebody a bunch of bicarb will all of a sudden give you a spike in your uh, entitled CO2. Doesn't mean you have ROSC. It just means that's just a, it's just a, you know, path. It's a normal physiologic process based on what you gave. So, all right. So that brings two questions to my mind. One is in a lot of these patients who go into cardiac arrest, when they come out, they don't have the best ejection fraction. So if someone, you know, has an EF of 15 or 20, and their heart kicks in, are you still going to see that big bump? Still more effective than CPR at that point? Almost always, yes. I mean, they, in my experience, every time I've had a cardiac arrest patient, if I have them on capnography and I get ROSC, I do see a spike. And the way I usually would know that is um, I see the spike and I either immediately, you know, check for pulses. You know, some monitors can actually kind of give you an underlying kind of cardiac rhythm. Uh, and you, so you could, you could kind of detect, okay, is, do I have an underlying perfusing rhythm and do I have this big spike? So do I have ROSC? Um, or I can even do like an ultrasound on their you know, heart and seeing if I've got a, you know, a normal squeeze look like going on in there. So there's different things you can do, but I think it, it is a good sign when you see that, um, you should still see a, a significant spike and the degree of the spike is always different. But, you know, if I'm, if I'm going from 20 to 40, I mean, that's, you know, nothing really does that. And typically the spikes are even a little bit higher than that. Okay. Interesting. And then the other thing is, I guess we should back up a little bit, as you mentioned, sodium bicarb and how that can affect the intercellular activity. Give us a brief overview. I know there's a ton involved in that, and most people don't remember all of the ins and outs and the Krebs cycle and stuff mm -hmm. from their AMP and Bio 1, but give us the, the nitty-gritty important stuff about that. So 
this gets into your acid base class. And so, you know, this is hopefully make it interesting without making everybody's eyes glaze over. But, you know, acid base physiology is, is pretty key to this whole component and what we're doing in the body and why it works. The newest stuff we're using in capnography for is really like sepsis identification. And this is really where this comes into play. So in a normal body, you know, as I said before, your body makes CO2 and it exhales it out. And when you're, your body likes to maintain a certain pH, um, it does not like any variations in it. And we all like to live around 7.4. And so the body will do all kinds of things to maintain that pH, whether it's, you know, it can, it can retain more bicarb through your kidneys. It can make you breathe faster. It can do different things to try to accommodate that, but it wants to maintain that. Um, so if I, if I say normally, you know, I live at a pH, you know, I've got no lung disease. I live at a pH of 7.4 and my PCO2 is around 40. That would be normal for me. But if I'm like a COPD patient who's a you know, chronic retainer, you know, their PCO, so their pH is also probably 7.4 because that's where the body likes to be. Now they, you know, their PCO2 because they're a chronic retainer might be like 55 and so that should affect it. But the, what happens to the body is over time, it actually retains bicarb uh, to compensate for that. And so even though their PCO2 is higher, they have higher bicarb levels in their body to try to basically compensate for that process. And so I can tell if they're an acute failure from COPD by kind of looking at their blood gas and measuring those kind of things. But that's the general idea behind it. The reason why this is important with the acid base, like I said, with CO2 is acid is basically hydrogen ions. It's the H+. Plus. And bicarb is, you know, it's just that sodium bicarbonate. But it's really the bicarbonate that we're looking for in this. The bicarbonate is, you know, HCO3, and it's negative. It's negatively charged ion. When those two come together, okay, so you get H2CO3, and that lives in equilibrium with water and CO2. And so when I, uh, when the hydrogen ion binds to the bicarbonate, it basically gets dissolved, and it breaks down into a compound of water and carbon dioxide. And one of the ways the body can compensate for acid problems is if I'm becoming acidotic, it's going to want to shift that curve over to the right side. So I'm going to blow off tons of CO2 to try to compensate for that. You know, because if I have a CO2 buildup, it can't do it, right? It's the hydrogen ions are binding to the bicarb, but then they just kind of both, they fall apart again they're because they're, still, they're backing yeah. up in the system. So it lives in an equilibrium. So one of the ways the body detects, you know, if you're acidotic is it blows off your CO2. And it's going to increase your respiratory rate and increase your respiratory drive to try to blow it off so that you're compensating for an acid problem. So if you see someone breathing fast, heavy, deep, you can assume that they're acidotic. Well, you, it's a possibility. You, know, you don't know that, right? right. You, it, let's just say you're a, uh, if you're a panic attack, you know, they look like they're breathing you know, rapid, deep, and everything else. But if I actually you know, was to put them on capnography, you know, they are blowing off CO2 inappropriately. I should see a low CO2 number, but I'm looking at their lungs that are clear. I'm looking at their pulse ox, they're 100%. You know, and then I'm like, okay, well, what's going on? I mean, is this, is this really an acid problem or is this a, just a more of a, you know, psychiatric problem that's kind of causing this? But yes, you're correct that if a, if a metabolic acidosis develops, um, DKA, you know, what's the classic term we always use for breathing in DKA patients? Kuzmol, right? Kuzmol breathing. Kuzmol breathing is rapid and deep. And that's what the, that the reason why that is, is because of the acid. The body is in DKA. DKA is diabetic ketoacidosis. And it is, it is an acidotic state in the body. So your pH of your body is low. I mean, I've seen them as low as like 6.7, 6.8, incredibly low, near death. 
and they breathe very deeply and they're breathing very you know, rapidly because they're trying to blow all that CO2 off to try to compensate. They're trying to basically save their life. Their brain is kicking everything in overdrive, doing everything it can to try to rectify this acid-base problem. And so it's going to breathe very rapidly, very deep. So I look at that. When I see people that are breathing really quickly, first thing I want to know is, okay, I want to know what their blood sugar is. I want to know what their, uh, you know, I want to click blood gas on them or, a, uh, or even just like a lactate to really kind of say, okay, is this kind of sepsis? Is this a diabetic problem? Because sometimes I've, I've detected people that say this is, you know, this they're having an asthma, they're having an asthma attack. And I'm like, well, they have a history of asthma, but they, they're not wheezing. And, you know, you can put them on capnography and they're not bronchoconstricted, right? So, and once again, if you think this is something, you know, they're breathing really fast because of asthma, if I put them on that capnography and they don't have bronchospasm, you know, they're, they're, they have a normal, normal waveform and it's not, uh, not a shark fin, you can't say their shortness of breath is due to asthma. I mean, you need to really look back and say, okay, is this something else going on? Is it, are they just breathing fast because it's, it's a panic attack or are they breathing fast because they're compensating for some other internal process? And, and I think that's an easy one to get fooled on for a lot of people too because DKA is often the first presentation of someone with diabetes, right? Mm -hmm. If it, new onset, if so, if they don't have a history of diabetes, they're breathing this way, that maybe isn't going to be the first thing that pops into a provider's head. And so understanding what those numbers mean and is this a solution to a problem or is it a problem that's being created by some other problem like anxiety, right? There was actually a study in 2015 that looked at, you know, using capnography in diabetic patients uh, with like, you know, hyperglycemia. And what it said was that if, you know, these patients that had a, a I think the sugar was over 550. So if they had a sugar over 550 and they had a entitled CO2 level less than 21, 100% of those patients had DKA. So basically what that's saying is, okay, yes, they're hyperglycemic and they are metabolic acidosis. Because when you're, once again, if you're acidotic, your body's going to breathe fast to try to compensate. So what you will see on a capnography is you'll see a low number. Uh, you want to see a low CO2, and that's indicative of that. So if you had, a, let's say, hyperglycemia, but your, blood, but your entitled CO2 was normal, I mean, if you had, if it, the study said if it was over 35, then 100% of those patients did not have DKA. None of them did. So it can kind of give you a, an idea of, okay, I mean, they, they're vomiting. They have hyperglycemia. I check their blood sugar. It reads high. I could put them on a capnography real quick. And if I see a really low number, I mean, I can be pretty certain that this is probably a DKA patient. That might change where you take the patient, depending on what it is. I mean, if you're... Uh, if you're trying to decide between like a, like a freestanding emergency room with you know less resources who really can't admit a DKA patient, they have to they'll have to transfer them again anyway. Or if you're saying this is to a, a place that actually has an ICU, um, then you might take them over to the ICU. That'd be a, a more a smart decision because you've already said, you know what, I think this is DKA based on this. In the end, our management right now in the EMS is, okay, I think I've identified a problem here. I'm going to start giving them volume, right? I'm giving fluids. Yeah, try uh, just to flush what them need. out a little bit. Yeah, really, they, that's all we can do. We don't have insulin in the field. Correct. So. Well, the number one, even even if you did have insulin in the field, the number one thing they need immediately is fluid because they're incredibly volume depleted. So they need IV fluids, IV fluids, IV fluids. I mean, DKA patients typically, you know, I've seen five, six liters deplete, you know, volume down for what they need. If they're actually like a hyperglycemic, uh, non-ketotic coma type patient, yeah. and their sugars are like 1,200, 1,300, 1,500, um, and those patients are more like 10 liters depleted. So they need a lot of fluid uh, to kind of compensate. So in, in your time with EMS, giving them a liter, you know, even two liters if you had a long transport is not inappropriate because uh, they are weighed down in what their volume status is. And when, that's the first thing we do in the ER. I'm going to give them volume, volume, volume. 
And then once I know what the potassium is and stuff, then I will start giving them the insulin because initially I need to give them the volume. Okay. So we know kind of how it works with cardiac arrest. We know what it can do for a DKA patient. How about um, some of those? We talked a little bit about asthma and seeing that shark fin and having that, you know, people who are retaining CO2. Mm -hmm. Um, what, what is it going to look like for a typical COPD patient or a CHF patient? So particularly with your bronchospasm patients, uh, which is your asthma and COPD, they'll look very similar. Um, the difference is, is your, your endpoints will be, might be different. So remember an asthmatic, their, their baseline lung function is it should be normal. And so they, you, you might see a shark fin and some, you know, CO2 retention, Initially, you actually might see them. Actually, their CT might be down a little bit, right? Because if they're, if they're kind of feeling like they're anxious and panicked because they're giving a hard time breathing, they might, before they even start retaining, they might start increasing the respiratory rate because they feel like they're oxygen starving. So their PCO2 might be initially be a little bit low, um, but you will start seeing shark fin. Um, versus the COPD patient, the morphology might look the same, but their, I mean, their endpoints are different, right? Because they might be starting more like at a 50. And so I don't, I won't just make a, a, a clear statement of, hey, this is acute COPD based on just the, just the number. I really have to look at what the waveform is doing. I'm looking for that shark fin pathology. If I'm doing the right thing and they're getting better, okay, their shark fin should actually start kind of normalizing, right? So if, I, if I'm improving the bronchospasm, then as I exhale out and as I improve things, it will actually cause that waveform to actually become more normal as they improve. You know, CHF is, um, you won't necessarily see a bronchospasm type waveform on it. What you may see more is that if it's causing CO2 retention for some reason, I guess the numbers could be higher. Once again, with CHF, because of the pulmonary edema, it may not be a completely, you have some degree of maybe a VQ mismatch there. You may not have a complete gas exchange, depending on how full of fluid they are. Um, so the morphology might look very similar to what you're normally seeing, but if they're breathing fast, obviously it'll be, um, it'll be, uh, you know, respiratory rate will increase on it. And you may start seeing shallower respirations because they're full of fluid. They really can't oxygenate is enough, so the amplitudes you're looking for might be more, you know, compressed. They're not breathing as deep. So if part of their lung space is covered with fluid, you're not getting good gas exchange through those that fluid. So basically, the lung volume that's useful is much smaller. Correct. I mean, they just, they just, they don't have the, the parts of the lung that are, that are oxygenated or interfunctional are not as good. So they, they'll have pleural effusions in the bases and that compresses part of the lung and they get pulmonary edema and the alveoli and those, those, uh, ones that have significant pulmonary edema just don't oxygenate as well, which is why they respond so well to BiPAP and stuff. And typically those patients, when you think about it physiologically, if you have some fluid in the lungs and you are laying them down, you're covering more of the lung tissue with fluid, whereas if you sit them up, it settles down to the bottoms and covers less. And that is why they do better and why you'll see better numbers if you keep those patients sitting up. And usually they're going to fight with you, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the most advantageous way to breathe is uh, sitting upright and actually leaning forward. It's kind of like your tripod position is mm -hmm. what we see. So if you think about it, I mean, if I'm leaning forward and I'm, you know, in the optimum position, my lungs are kind of hanging off the back there. And so they're going to be the most maximally inflated they can be, which is why, you know, classically tripoding patients are leaning forward and they're sitting bolt upright. They don't want to do anything else. 
Um, laying flat is, an, is a disadvantageous problem because now you have the weight of your chest wall on top of your lungs and also your diaphragm. I mean, one of the ways your lungs inflate is your diaphragm. If you're laying flat, it's not dropping as nearly as much versus if you're sitting upright, you got gravity helping to pull that diaphragm down and it's making the abdominal contents go down more so you actually have, can have better respirations. So laying flat is not advantageous uh, for, a, a, uh, for breathing at all. And is there, so typically when we're working in cardiac arrest, that patient has to lay down because we're doing compressions. Yeah. Can you identify a patient who is a severe CHF patient through capnography in a cardiac arrest patient? Does that make sense? I've never used it that way. I think I would have much better physical findings to suggest this was a CHF. Yeah, you'd see um, edema. Yeah, I mean, a pitting edema. They might have, you know, significant JBD, um, you know, the, the history they have. I might listen to pulmonary edema. So, and it, it wouldn't probably help guide me too much in the way I would treat that patient at that time. Uh, you know, once you're in CHF and cardiac arrest, I mean, the management is basically no different than any other kind of cardiac arrest. There's nothing much more I can do at that particular moment. You know, we've kind of already kind of hit the point where their heart has stopped. You know, we had our opportunity to intervene with BiPAP and, and vasodilators and things like that are already kind of gone. Uh, so we just got to get the heart restarted and best we can and, and then, uh, you know, put them on some positive pressure ventilation. But positive pressure ventilation in, in CHF works incredibly well. All right. And so you mentioned before the, the Kuzmal respiration. Mm-hmm. I, that makes me think about some of our head injured patients and how someone with a, a significant head injury can see a change in their respiratory pattern. How can we use capnography in those types of patients? I think the best use of it is for a really close monitoring of what we're doing. Um, you know, there's two things, the worst things that we know for head injury. The two worst things are hypotension and hypoxia, because no matter what happens with their head injury, if they have hypotension or hypoxia, they definitely have an increased risk of permanent brain injury associated with it. So we want to avoid those at all costs, which is why we don't practice permissive hypotension with trauma patients that have head injuries. Um, it's why we want to make sure we get, you know, fix any hypoxia statuses as, as fast as possible. And when you're looking at, because this is a good measurement of avoiding hypertension hypoxia, we'd also, you know, we don't hyperventilate them unless absolutely we have to. It used to be, I remember, you know, when I was a paramedic 20 years ago, it was, you know, okay, yeah, if you think you got a head injury, you hyperventilate, hyperventilate them. And we know now that's actually not necessarily a good thing. It's actually a bad thing in many cases. When you hyperventilate somebody, you're actually causing vasoconstriction. And so you can decrease blood flow to part of the brain, um, can cause secondary injury to the brain tissue. So we don't like to hyperventilate patients. The only time I... You know, that the clinical guidelines really recommend hyperventilation in the acute setting of a, of a head injury is if there are signs of active herniation. Uh, so, you know, if I have a patient who's obviously got a significant head injury and I start seeing uh, decorticate posturing, uh, I start seeing the cerebral posturing, I start seeing, you know, one of my pupils ipsilaterally gets blown and I'm having some contractures. I mean, all those things are bad signs neurologically. They are herniating. <laughs> That's someone I would consider hyperventilating that patient and actually blowing off CO2. So if I have them intubated, I mean, normally we try to say, you know, 10 to 12, you know, I'd easily hyperventilate them 20 times a minute. And it's a short-term fix. And I know that I'm potentially causing a problem on the back end, but really, I mean, if they herniate their brain, uh, there's really no recovering yeah, from there's that. there's no coming back from there's that. There's no coming so. back. So, you know, in that way, you know, CO2 could be helpful to measure 
because you don't want to hyperventilate them so low that it's a you know a problem typically we say we hyperventilate them down to like 35 would be your number so if you were say okay i'm gonna you know, I have them on capnography and they're now showing signs of herniation. I might hyperventilate until I get to that point where their internal CO2 is like a 35. And then I can say, okay, I'm going to kind of maintain that because I, I know I'm not, I don't want to go too far, but I know I can and monitor it closely that way. And so the goal there is to try to actually cause some vasoconstriction and reduce swelling. Yeah, How the, the goal is, um, is that? It's a short-term fix. It's not a long-term fix. It is mildly effective. It does cause some decreased intracranial pressure when we do this. On the, on the back end, I can have some underlying injury that occurs because of that. So it's really a stopgap measure. We really only use it for the most extreme cases. And really, if I want to see herniation, if I don't see herniation, I just want to keep them neutral. I mean, I want to keep them, I want to keep their blood pressure good. I want to keep their, their MAP blood pressure, their mean systolic pressure high. And I want to keep their you know, oxygen levels at near 100%. And that's the best I can do to maintain that uh, and make sure that they're getting good blood flow to the brain that way. And so in a pre-hospital setting, would you recommend that providers be aware of that and think about that and, and act on that? Or, or would you suggest that's a call and talk to a doc, say, hey, this is what I'm seeing. I'm thinking about, I, I, I want to you know, hyperventilate them a little bit because of this. Do you agree with that? Do you think that is required or is it like? It, it depends. I mean, the, the, physi the physiology is sound. I mean, these are in the clinical practice guidelines through the, the military and they're, they're all over the place. This is how you kind of manage these things. I think the one thing is first is you would factor, okay, what do my protocols say I need to do with this? Do they even have this in my protocol? I mean, if they don't have anything there about hyperventilating a head injury patient, you should talk to your medical director and, dis <laughs> and discuss like, when would this be appropriate or can it be a standing order or a direct order? Yeah. Part don't is, how, don't how far, go rogue yeah. because you heard this podcast. Yeah, right? I mean, like you know, <laughs> so it's you know, you don't want to you don't want to do that. I think that is the medicine is sound behind it. There's no disagreement that hyperventilating head trauma in general is bad. You know, that is not uh, that is that is pretty well established. Uh, but I think there, you know, you want to make sure that you're following the directions you have. I think though, you would factor is how far out am I from where I need to go. There's other things I can do to lower increased, you know, ICP besides just hyperventilating that we didn't even talk about, like you loosening the C collar, raising the head of the bed, raising the head of bed up to, uh, you know, 45 degrees or 30 degrees and, you know, decreasing the uh, C collar on the neck. I mean, all those things will actually have significant incre decreases in your ICP. Hyperventilation is an option. It's a short-term gap. I only use it for hyperventilation. Um, if I have a long transport still, if I still have 15 minutes of this person and they're already showing signs of herniation, I think it's a very reasonable thing to do. Um, I think the downside is much less than the, uh, you know, than the potential risks involved. Um, but something that would definitely do, make sure your, how your, how your director feels about it. Yeah. I'd say that across the board, right? When in doubt, in, in general, call. yes. Just cause you heard it, just cause you heard it from me, you know, don't necessarily fall back on that. Any other interesting things with head injury that we can glean from looking at their capnography or, or patterns we might see in, in respiratory patterns? Different head injuries can cause different kind of um, physiologic phenomena. So you'll see, you know, Cushing's triad. You can see Chain-Stokes respirations. Um, so all those will be there. I mean, you know, Cushing's triad, they'll start seeing hyperventilation. Uh, they got this kind of irregular type patterns going on. And so they usually will be hypertensive, bradycardic, and have irregular respiratory patterns. Um, so you might see some kind of really abnormal respiratory patterns on your on your capnography. And if you're looking at it, I mean, it'd be the same way if I'm looking at it, I'm like, wow, it doesn't look any kind of regular, 
it's almost like an AFib of uh, capnography. It's not regular. It's not consistent. It's just kind of like, you know, doing different things. And they can look at the patient and say, yeah, he's definitely showing that. And I'll see other signs that are, that are showing signs of increased ICP, such as the hypertension, the pupillary reflex, and the, uh, you know, the, the bradycardia, which is all part of that Cushing's triad. And, and on its own, not going to change your care or treatment, but a good clue. Correct. In it's something you just monitor, but it would not necessarily change what I was doing with that patient at that time. Okay. We talked a little bit before about about sepsis, and I think that is probably one of the biggest changes over the last, I don't know, maybe five years that I've noticed is <clears throat> how we're using this as a really valuable and accurate tool in identifying a septic patient mm-hmm. and what's going on. And, and it makes sense when we think about how important this is and what a really an illustration of the intercellular metabolism and what is cellular respiration? Is that what yeah. the term we use? Yeah, cellular respiration <laughs> is a good term. I think the key with sepsis and where I would start with this is saying that, I mean, it is one of the biggest health care dollar expenses um, in the country. I mean, billions and billions of dollars every year on sepsis uh, management treatment. It also has an incredibly high mortality. So much though that, I mean, there are literally national guidelines that, you know, emergency rooms follow which really tell us that, you know, there's a time window, like from the time they hit the doors, we want all these interventions done, you know, all within that first hour. I mean, they want blood cultures, they want, you know, all the vital signs, they want 30 cc's per kilogram of IV fluids and flus, they want, you know, broad spectrum antibiotics given, they want lactate measurements done, they want all this from the first hour. And so, and that's a, a tall task, especially, you know, if you have a say a backed up waiting room or, you know, you've got a, a busy ER. So you want to really have a process in place to do this quickly. And that's why they do this is say, we really want to do the best care because they, they've shown, I mean, the data does show that if you give them these fluids, you give them these antibiotics and they have septic shock, I mean, you absolutely can decrease mortality. I mean, significantly decrease mortality, decreased hospital stays, decreased dollars and decreased mortality. So that is why we do it. It's a hot, hot topic in emergency medicine and it has been for several years. And will continue to be so for a long time. Um, the reason why it's important with EMS is, you know, there are things that we can do in EMS to help identify this and actually initiate treatment and give them the right things quickly. One of the things we do in uh, emergency rooms is we measure lactate. And as we've, as we've talked about before, I mean, normal aerobic metabolism, there's no lactate generated. It's basically, you know, your glucose and your oxygen goes in, your CO2 water comes out, you get ATP. And that requires that you have normal oxygen, normal cellular function. Uh, when you have lactic acid, when you have an anaerobic metabolism, you basically have exceeded your aerobic metabolism and you get, uh, you get lactic acidosis. So lactate is a byproduct of the energy generated uh, from this anaerobic metabolism. So, you know, if you're a runner and you do this big marathon, and you get that burn in your muscles, everything else, that's all lactic acid buildup. Um, I would hate to think of, you know, what the uh, you know, pH of these, you know, marathon, ultra marathon <laughs> runners when they come out. I mean, it, it's got to be incredibly low. They look like they'd be dead probably, but they have very good clearance mechanisms to get rid of it. So lactic is what we measure. And the two numbers we really care about, I mean, normal is like zero to one. I mean, really anything over two, uh, we consider it to be severe sepsis, but like that two to four range is considered severe sepsis. And if it's over four, it's considered to be septic shock. And so, you know, most ambulances and fire trucks, they don't carry lactate monitors. And, and what we found is in the last decade or so, agencies have tried to use them and they're not very reliable, right? Yeah, well, the problem is they like to have kind of a nice kind of 
cozy environment to live in. They don't like to be bumped around. The cartridges like to be kept at a certain temperature. I mean, so there, there's there's complications with trying to do them. Um, the you know we do them point of care in the emergency department, so it is, it is a point of care test you can do. But I think that there's troublesome issues around trying to use it with an EMS. Not that they can't be overcome, but it is troublesome. Um, so but we so most times they don't have this, and even if they did, it's a, it's a cost. It's a significant cost to be able to run a, a lactate program out of an of EMS agency. But one thing we all we, we all have is we all have if you're an A list department, you've got capnography. And, you know, we just had this whole big talk about, you know, what is, um, you know, how acid base works. So if I've got lactic acidosis, you know, my body is going to increase my respiratory rate and it's going to blow off my CO2 to try to compensate. And that's how that's going to kind of work in that acid base buffering process. So we know that if you have lactic acidosis, you're going to be blowing off CO2. You're going to have an increased respiratory rate and blowing off CO2. That's normal physiology. Dr. Hunter did a study in 2016. And they really looked at, you know, can we use entitled CO2 as a surrogate for lactate? And the answer is yes. Um, you know, it, it kind of looked at these different numbers and it, it measured different things. And what it kind of found was that if you have an entitled CO2 of less than 25, that correlates with a lactate of four or greater. Um, so, you know, if I'm thinking, okay, I've got, you know, possible sepsis and I've got this uh, patient, they're fevering, they're tachycardic, and I put them on capnography and their CO2 is 20, you know, that is a good correlator that their lactate is over four. And so that'd be enough to say, yes, this looks to be sepsis and I should initiate treatment at this time. You know, that treatment may be anything from, uh, you know, fluid boluses, uh, notification of the ER. Um, some systems I've seen around the country actually have broad spectrum antibiotics on the ambulances. And they just have orders to go ahead and start giving them like Rocephin or things like that right in the ambulance. Um, I think that's very much a system dependent issue. Like, you know, how far of a transport do you have? And I mean, it's not a benign intervention. That's a pretty serious intervention. But if you've got like long transport times and kind of curvy hills and you have problems getting to, to good access to care, that may be something that the medical director implements in that system to say, yes, we can do this. When I was in Iraq, I had a couple of rural remote aid stations that, you know, we really didn't have a dock or a PA to put out there, but we had like a senior medic with like a group of like 25 people. And we gave them kind of broad, you know, abilities through extra training and, and kind of uh, medical oversight to where, Hey, you know, if you have these kind of things, call us on the phone, we'll talk you through it. Uh, but you know, starting antibiotics uh, on things that would normally be in their scope, but we'd say, yes, you could do this. And you could, um, you know, you can call it and you know, maybe the next morning they'd be on the round, they'd be on the uh, medevac pickup to come over to us and let a doc see him, but just was not to delay care. There's, a, you know, unfortunately a very big issue if you're trying to call in an urgent medevac, I and mean, that's a big dollar expense, that's a big risk to the crew. So if it seemed more minor and they just needed, you know, an infection that needed antibiotics, but they were otherwise stable, we had the medics basically call in a report. We talked to them and said, yeah, you know, you have a, you have a cash antibiotics there, go ahead and give them this, and then, you know, send them, send them over here tomorrow on the routine, uh, you know, convoy that's coming over here and we'll take care of it. And that'll buy you some time. It buys us time. Right? We want to start things early. Yeah, so like that's, that's where we do those things. Um, we started doing in my EMS agencies and a lot of EMS agencies, we started doing these sepsis alerts. And the idea behind it is, is that if I have two or more SERS criteria, you know, and your SERS criteria are really just physiologic criteria that we're using heart rate, respiratory rate, temperature, and white blood cell count. Now, I can't get a white blood cell count on an ambulance, but I can get, you know, the three other SERS criterias. 
And really sepsis by definition is really, I have two surge criteria present and I have a suspected infection. That's all it takes. So if I'm tachycardic and febrile and I'm coughing and I seem like I've got, you know, some kind of upper respiratory infection, I've got sepsis. Um, so if I've got two surge criteria and at this point we say, okay, if you've got two surge criteria present and you think you've got infection maybe within what you're seeing, then go ahead and put them on capnography. And if I've got a capnography now of less than 25, or if their blood pressure is less than 90 systolic, that's enough to say they've got septic shock. And I'm gonna go ahead and call a sepsis alert, uh, let the hospital know to be able to receive that. And I'll start the IV fluids because all the IV fluids that the EMS give, I mean, if they can give 500 cc's or 800 cc's of fluid before I even get them, before they even get to me, that all counts in the IV fluids that the patient needs as part of those quality metrics. Like I told you, it was 30 cc's per kilogram. So if I have a 100 kilogram person, that means in that first hour, they need to have three liters of fluid infused and the antibiotics and the blood cultures and the lactate, and all these things then. If I can get a, a portion of that in there ahead of time, that's incredibly helpful and it's a good thing. So it shortens the duration for us to be able to complete the bundle, to be able to complete the care that they need. And also, it also gets that doc in the room quicker because we all know that if there's a really busy day, and, you know, although the docs try to meet every single ambulance, it doesn't always happen. If I'm backed up and, you know, if I've got, you know, three level two chest pains waiting to see me, um, I won't always necessarily go right to the ambulance if they look okay, uh, unless, the, unless the crew identifies as someone that needs to have a doc on arrival. So if I have a crew tell me, hey, I've got a sepsis patient, you know, this is what I got, you know, they're, you know, even if their blood pressure is okay, but they're tachycardic, they're febrile, they've got into low internal CO2, They've got an indwelling Foley catheter, they're altered or whatever that is. That's enough to say, you know, sepsis alert, get the doc in the room, the doc can evaluate them quickly and then initiate the bundle, you know, order the antibiotics, order all that stuff. And it greatly decreases the amount of time that it, that it would normally take to, for them to get all those things completed. And, that, and once again, time is, time is tissue. It really is just like a heart attack and a stroke. I mean, we really think that the sooner we can do this, the better it is for the patient, decreases mortality. And it, what other mechanisms does that spin up in an ER? When you when we hear those numbers, when we hear this is a sepsis alert, and we know we can trust that because the EMS agency has given us this concrete information, mm -hmm. aside from getting a doc in the room and, and starting that, are we contacting pharmacy? What kind of other stuff happen when we know we want So it depends to on each hospital might have a little bit different process to how they internally do it. Um, we treat it like an emergent essentially. So basically it means I have a nurse, a tech and a doc in the room upon arrival. You know, in my ER, we actually have a pharmacist, a clinical pharmacist in the ER at almost all times. And so the pharmacist themselves will take it upon them to go ahead and grab the antibiotics. Pretty commonly, there's usually like, you know, two or three go-to antibiotics we give for most, you know, frontline sepsis patients like rocephin or ceftriaxone. That's a very common one for initial management. Uh, so initiate that therapy. So, I mean, if I'm there right there in the room and I say, yep, let's go ahead and do the bundle, um, you know, I, you know, the pharmacist is right there. I can say, yep, go ahead and grab the antibiotics. And there's no more delay in doing that because the pharmacist will go grab it and bring it right back to the room and hand it to the nurse and it's gets hung. So, I mean, it can be hung within 10 minutes. And, you know, shortens all that duration of time versus if I have to, you know, order it and the pharmacist has to acknowledge the order and send it over to the pharmacy and um, that just delays time. So we really try to put processes in place in the hospitals to shorten the amount of time that we uh, can complete all the things we need to to improve mortality. Um, and, we're you know, most hospitals are really good at it. Like we're really good at it or at my hospital. 
but it's an it's an ever going you know challenge process we do, and it's something you have to train on. But yeah, and that's been a really interesting thing to see over the last just couple of years. I've noticed is now we're tracking our door to antibiotic time, just like we've always tracked our door to needle and our door to balloon. And we know that these metrics count towards survivability and people walking out of the hospital, which is great. And and so I think EMS is probably going to start hearing and getting notes from the hospital saying, hey, way to go. On this sepsis alert, we had a door to antibiotic of seven minutes and this patient went home in three days. Whereas if it had been extended to a half hour, hour, two hours, that would be a very different outcome. It is an incredibly valuable tool. And you know, what we found is that when EMS does call it, I mean, we definitely have a decreased time. If I was to take all comers of patients, those who just come in by normal triage, they walk in and then they get triaged. And the time it takes me to do all the bundle compliance for those patients versus those who come by EMS, the EMS is definitely shorter. And it's shorter, especially if they identify themselves, pre-identify it as a sepsis patient, because then there's no delay in getting the doc over there. And the doc's already kind of keyed in that we need to you know, be going this route quickly. And they'll look at it. Um, but they've been very accurate. I mean, they've been very accurate. And uh, you know, the ones that they say this is a, you know, a pre-hospital sepsis alert, that's a very... Uh, very accurate for the most part of saying that, you know, a lot of times those are sepsis patients and they were correct. Um, you know, and in the end, I mean, the, all, the whole goal of this is to save lives. And that's all we do. So if we think, if we think this is saving lives and we've got, you know, great mortality numbers, then you know, we should keep on trying to improve that process. And you had mentioned that study that, that said below 25, what is the sensitivity specificity of that? If, if we're seeing those other SERS criteria, you see two other things and you're below 25, is that like 100%? No, so it's not 100%. So it was, um, so in the study in 2016, you know, they did a very similar trial to what I said that we use here uh, with my systems is they used the two SERS criteria and then those, you know, kind of two markers, either the, the entitled CO2 or the uh, hypotension. And what they found, though, is that with the hypotension, with the entitled CO2 less than 25, if they have two SERS criteria, it was 90% sensitive and 58% specific. So what does that mean is, you know, 90% 90 sensitive means that you know, 90% of the time they captured everybody that had that criteria. It wasn't particularly specific because I'm saying there's other things that can cause you to be tachypnic. I mean, you could be tachypnic and blow off your CO2 because you're febrile or because you're panicked or something like that. So it's not terribly specific, but in a screening tool, the most important number is sensitivity. You want to make sure that you're not missing things. So if it's not sensitive, it's not a good screening tool at all. And when you look at negative predictive value, which is basically saying that if I don't have all these things present, then I can exclude it. It was 93% negative predictive value, which is pretty good. So I've been saying that, you know, if they didn't have an intensity less than 25, you know, I could exclude that 93% of the time that this was not a septic patient. Um, and so that's a, that's a good number to know too, is, you know, when you're looking at all these, you know, data and stats and I am not a data and stats guy. I, I did that in college and it was a, a rough course, but you know, the numbers needed to treat the negative predictive value, positive predictive value and sensitivity specificity are all pretty important for clinicians to know. So it sounds like this is a really valuable tool for septic patients and, and this new wave that we're seeing about how significantly sick these patients can be and what a burden they can be on the healthcare system. If I think it's an incredibly them. valuable tool. I think, you know, if you, if you have capnography and you have the ability to do nasal capnography um, on your ambulances, I mean, you should have a protocol like this. You should have a, a sepsis protocol, a screening protocol. I mean, it, it is absolutely the right way to go with everything that we're doing with these things called the surviving sepsis campaign across the country. 
Um, it is an early recognition tool, and it is a valuable guide tool to be able to identify patients early. Um, you know, the earlier I can identify them, the better off they are. Once again, if I know, I mean, based on what I, you know, if I can screen them and say, yeah, I think this is sepsis, I get them to the right hospital, I get them to the right doctor, I get the place that has the right resuscitation capabilities. I mean, all that's good for the patient, you know, and in the end, that's, you know, that's what we're all doing this for every day. Well, this has been a really dense podcast. We've gone over a ton. Are there any, uh, any things we haven't talked about yet that you think we really want to include? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say that, I mean, one thing, you know, when, when you're looking at capnography is one is just get comfortable with what these waveforms look like and what normal looks like and what's not normal. And so, you know, it's not, it's not infallible. Okay. It is a tool and you need to know kind of the limitations of it. Um, and I discussed a lot of them here, but you know, you can tell a lot about what's going on. And if you apply it to the individual situation you're in, if I'm looking for sepsis or I'm, I'm like, Hmm, what's going on with this? I've got these weird numbers. You know, I can apply that to what I'm looking at and I apply that to the patient. I mean, I can, I can use it to screen for a lot of things. I think by far and away, the number one things that, you know, EMS needs to use this for is, is a uh, sedation, uh, you know, monitoring. It's a gold standard in the hospital. It's mandatory. It should be mandatory in EMS. Uh, tube confirmation without a doubt is, you know, by far the best tool we have to be accurate. And then probably three is sepsis would be the number one things I would focus on. Um, those are your biggest ticket items. Uh, and I think they're the, um, you know, kind of the most cutting edge areas and also the more traditional areas, but they're more, the most high risk areas for EMS. And I think those are probably the areas we should really focus on the most. Perfect. And for anyone who wants to dig deeper and figure out more about how to use this tool after they get comfortable with what normal is and how we can use it in those uh, specific cases, any, any literature you'd recommend, any books? Um, you know, actually, if you... You know, the, the manufacturer, I think, for the capnography, a lot of them are like uh, Massimo. And, uh, you know, so if you look at those manufacturer websites, they actually have good training videos uh, really on, you know, capnography, what it is, how to use it. Um, you know, there are, if you go to like even like a YouTube channel and you find, um, you know, a lecturer that's, you know, a physician that's kind of giving a, a, a some of them are like medical channels. And they really kind of give pretty good rundowns of kind of how this is applied. Um, I think it's a, it's a complex topic. And I think it's the hardest part is without really seeing it and having this kind of hands-on look at it and, and looking at it while you're talking about it, it's, it's hard to understand because a lot of things are inverse. And you know, like you were saying before, a lot of people think, you know, okay, if I'm septic, it's going to be high. No, it's actually low. And this is why, because it's a, it's an inverse relationship. And so a lot of things are complex topics. And, you know, trust me, I, I learned, you know, about this stuff, um, not because I'm the, you know, best studier in the world. I'm not, you know, I, I, I was a procrastinator, uh, you know, through college. And, but I, I found that, you know, by learning it and by teaching it, um, I became way more comfortable with it and actually became a really good educator about it as far as how to use this. And I think it's, you know, it's really the gold standard of where we need to be using to assess ventilatory status and kind of physiologic status of our patients. Outstanding. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Hill. I really appreciate the conversation today. My mind is super full right now. I'm sure our <laughs> listeners are. So going to take a little time to decompress that, but a lot of great information. Thank you so much. Sure. Anytime. We are on a quest to provide the world with free medical education. Please help us out by rating us on iTunes, following us on social media, and subscribing to our newsletter 
at emergencymedicalminute.com.